Welcome to Seed Phrase, a podcast speaking with people close to art, blockchains, or both. Seed Phrase is hosted by the New Institute Hamburg and is recorded there with a live audience. I'm Simon Denny, an artist who unpacks stories about technologies, and I ask each guest to choose 12 words, their personal seed phrase, which is then minted as an NFT. Today's seed phrase guest is Wasim Alcindi. Wasim and I spoke about his history in blockchains, his current outfit, Zero Excellent, run out of the space Trust in Berlin, his role at MIT as a blockchain newsletter editor, projects that he worked on and thought of, including a utopian Bitcoin wallet project for migrants and refugees, blockchain poetry, and a new theater piece he's working on in dialogue with Starts, a European Commission fund for art and technology. We also delve into the history of the titular seed phrase, what seed phrases are, and how they were developed to give a bit of a background to this series. Let's get straight into our conversation. Yeah, thanks very much, Simon. And uh, thanks to the New Institute for, for hosting us and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Uh, so my name is Wasim Al-Sindi. And uh, yeah, wear many hats, as I think many people do by, by these days. Um, I suppose the main thing to say is that I'm a cryptocurrency researcher and scholar. I edit a journal in the space. Um, I've worked in uh, several institutions, uh, primarily universities. Um, working on like research, uh, teaching, um, also this kind of like um, knowledge transfer and exchange. I'm particularly interested in um, the ways of uh, translating and breaking down these particularly complex concepts that go into making up uh, the networks um, and the um, building blocks, technical, social, economic building blocks of, of Web3, of crypto, of decentralized technology. And um, yeah, more recently, I've been kind of gravitating, I suppose, a bit more uh, to uh, creative modes of engagement and um, yeah, somewhat becoming an artist, uh, engaging with these technologies in this space. That's a great start. Thank you very much for being here again. Um, so again, we're going to return to the reason why I called the podcast and why I'm kind of theming the series around the concept of a seed phrase. Maybe just to define it, uh, many people listening or here will know what a seed phrase is. But um, very briefly, Wasim, can you tell us from a technical perspective uh, what a seed phrase actually is? Yeah, sure. So um uh, as we said, these networks are kind of made up of these technological building blocks, and they're you know very complicated uh, to the to the human eye and to the human brain. And so there's this concept in uh, what's called public key infrastructure, um, PKI, uh, which is one of the uh, cryptographic building blocks of these uh, Web3 uh, cryptocurrency networks. And so you have this thing, these things called public keys and private keys. And the public keys are a little bit like your address, kind of like your postal address. And the private key is kind of like your password. Now, these things are these very long strings, alphanumeric strings, numbers and letters, and they're not human readable and they're not very memorable. And so uh, what the seed phrase is, this was a kind of a, an upgrade or an improvement that was brought into Bitcoin um, after it was created, several years after it was created, to make a human readable, human understandable way of reconstructing your password so that you can access your wallet. So this is, you can think of it as a mnemonic, as a kind of a, mem a memory uh, a trick to be able to recall uh, your password, in essence. Right, exactly. So this is, I mean, one of the reasons why I chose that kind of secret private password as the kind of theme for this show is one thing, of course, because the phrase, seed phrase, 
just sounds like a conversation, and that's kind of what this series will be, a series of conversations. Uh, the other reason of that is uh, there's a lot of jokes uh, on the internet about people that get into crypto for the first time um, are given their private keys, which is a series of 12 words, their, their quote-unquote seed phrase. Uh, they then uh, excitedly take a photo of these uh, 12 words and share it on social media. So uh, sharing of the, of, of the kind of private key uh, seed phrase is, uh, is something that you absolutely shouldn't do, and this podcast is not um, uh, trying to encourage. Uh, rather, I ask each guest uh, to think of their own 12 phrase uh, seed phrase, which is maybe a private key to some of their thoughts uh, or something like that. Um, maybe just a, a little bit more into that history uh, before we go into your own personal journey in this space, uh, Wasim. Um, I'm looking right now at the kind of a repo on, on GitHub, which has the Bitcoin uh, 0039BIP like um, list of seed phrases, of words or a dictionary rather, that the seed phrase comes from. It's like 2,048 words. It's a very specific list. I'm looking at the English one. There's a few other languages. But they, that comes from a very particular history, and there's a very particular reason why those things um, exist. I know, interestingly, it's kind of an A to Z, and number one is abandon. So uh, just in, in terms of uh, auto-poetry from um, Bitcoin, uh, uh, yeah, I guess, um, conventions, I think abandon, ability, able, about are the first four, which I think is already quite an interesting, um, from an arts perspective, nice found poem. Um, but maybe you can talk to the context this was created in, go a little bit into also who was involved in choosing these uh, words because I think that I think from an art perspective what's also really interesting is that there is a kind of a cultural value to these words but they were chosen by a particular person with a particular history in a particular context so maybe maybe if you can lean into that yeah I think there's like a, something there but there's also a practical element as well <laughs> uh, which is that um, the first four words of each of the entries in this 2048 word dictionary so first four letters rather is unique mm. so when you reconstruct your wallet using the seed phrase and the and the what and the software that you're using um you only need to type in the first four words mm. uh, first four letters i'm sorry and so that's uh, one thing to make it a bit easier and uh, to distinguish the words apart from each other because as we know in the english language and in other languages which the um uh, bip 39 um uh, seed phrase uh, affordance is is uh, located we have like uh, some european languages like uh, french we also have some non-european languages like uh, korean and japanese and uh, some variant of uh, of chinese language um, and so the idea is to use words that have a degree of uniqueness from each other so that we don't confuse uh, words in the seed phrase mm. because that would make it harder for it to use and more likely to uh, lose access to your wallet Right, so there's kind of like a technical reason for the selection as well as maybe a cultural one or a context-based one. Yeah, um, and uh, as you say, there are some like uh, interesting words uh, in there, like I'm looking through the list near the top as well. You've got words like abuse, <laughs> absent, ad addict, admit, um, it, affair. Yeah. Word number 103, though, is art, actually, which is also quite nice. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to see shorter words in there mm. um, because that would then um, preclude using a, a longer word that's similar. So you couldn't use the word artifact, for mm -hmm. example. Um, but yeah, it's, it, I think shorter words make, make sense as well mm. uh, because, again, you're reducing the amount of uh, characters you have to type in. So you have a wallet on your phone mm -hmm. and you're reconstructing it. So you've got a new phone and you're uh, reloading your wallet uh, from your old phone onto it. You'll be there typing these words into it and it is quite a stressful process i'm sure you've been there simon as well <laughs> yeah. i mean a lot of things in cryptocurrency those are kind of a usability 
challenge even with people that have a lot of experience using these things um like i still get a little bit tense whenever i send a transaction whenever i um you know make a contract or do something with a token it is a little bit stressful you worry that you're going to make mistakes and that speaks to uh, the difficulty of using these things and how early we are with these technologies that we don't have so many um kind of labor saving uh, or um you know um uh, tools that, that make things easier for us. And this BIP39, the seed phrases, is an example of kind of a labor-saving uh, device as well. But even with that, even with this kind of plain language English dictionary, it's still not that easy to use. And it's still a little bit kind of tense and stressful when we use it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Maybe a little something about the context. Again, it was created and uh, Peter Wuller was a, an author of a kind. I'm sure there was some community aspect to it as well, but that's that's a name that often gets mentioned uh, with the beginning of the seed phrase as a technology. Do, do you want to like speak it a little bit to sure. the context he was working in and, and what he's up to now? Yeah, so we talked about this BIP39 and uh, the BIP part of that is it stands for Bitcoin Improvement Proposal. So there's this kind of proposal process, which is meant to be this kind of relatively democratic uh, governance process in um, updating and upgrading the software that uh, goes into implementing the, the Bitcoin protocol on the computers that, that, run, that run the network. And so the idea is that somebody will propose an upgrade to the network and it will go through many rounds of discussion. This will go off at first in a mailing list, one of these kind of Linux text-based mailing lists and email lists. Uh, that goes around every day and people will uh, make a proposal in there and say hey i have an idea about how we can improve bitcoin or ethereum or whatever it is and they will kind of sketch out the proposal so in this case i imagine it would have been um we think that uh, these alphanumeric strings which are the private keys are hard to use mm -hmm. and they uh, uh the, the likelihood of making mistakes is very high when you're entering these texts they're quite unforgiving Mm -hmm. uh, to write in, uh, like, you know, uh, character by character. And so to, to make it easier, we put something in a human readable language, in plain English or French, Korean, and so on. And so that would have been the justification. Mm -hmm. And then somebody would have rebutted that as, you know, kind of the, the, the mode of discourse. This is kind of a political arena, despite the fact that we're talking about technologies. Mm -hmm. This is essentially a technology governance matter. So if somebody would have disagreed with this, then the proposal would have been refined. Other people would come out and support. And the way that you can see this on the mailing lists happening, even on the GitHub uh, repo repository of, of Bitcoin, uh, you'll see people say things like ACK, A-C-K, which is kind of like a, I approve, or NAC which is, I don't approve. And so you're kind of, it's almost like a straw poll, people kind of raising their hands in the room uh, to tell them whether, uh, to indicate whether the um, people uh, support uh, this thing or not. We should just say about who is kind of in the room, so to speak, when these things are, are decided or determined, it's mostly developers. It's mostly what you might think of as an inner cadre, kind of the, the, the insiders, the, the open source cathedral in uh, uh, Eric Raymond's terminology um, of the Bitcoin core developers. This mm. is, in some ways, a chosen few, and it certainly was a fewer number uh, back in the days of the early 2010s when this was determined. And so it's kind of like a fairly limited group of people that are considered by the community to have the requisite uh, technical knowledge to be able to make these decisions uh, from a place of understanding the practicalities of implementing it and also from the, um, the advantages of making these upgrades and uh, making these improvements to the protocol. But we should just say that, you know, th this all started with Bitcoin. Bitcoin, uh, the governance of Bitcoin and the culture of it more widely is extremely conservative. Hmm. 
you know, in the kind of traditional sense of, of that word. You mean um, to, to conserve, in a way. To, to conserve. To keep it the same. Resistant to change right. in many ways. And that's kind of, you know, a, a blessing and a curse, depending mm -hmm. on the way you look at these things. Um, and so it's actually not that straightforward to make these upgrades to, to Bitcoin. And so you would really need to have quite a lot of support. Uh, from the, the people in the room, so to speak, mm. uh, the developers that are uh, members of this mailing list. And look, anybody can access the mailing list. Anybody can reply, but not everybody's voice is listened to. Mm. So you have to have some kind of like cultural cachet, I guess, in the community right. uh, to be considered um, a worthy voice of, of consideration as these decisions are being made. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, I want to I want to zoom out a little bit now um, from from the definition of a seed phrase. Hopefully, we're all kind of um, there with you on that one, and and also I, I guess getting my uh, idea of why I used it as a kind of found uh, found form uh, to kind of shape the frame of this podcast. Um, and I want to get into um, and your chosen twelve words, and uh, and also um, your own uh, personal history um, uh, as well. So I might just ask you to read your twelve word seed phrase uh, slowly, uh, word by word, uh, for now. And this is also um, uh, for those of you uh, who are kind of a party to this. Um, uh, also, what will generate a, a little NFT uh, that will commemorate this um, this this podcast also. So uh, first thing to say is that um, my seed phrase would probably be considered a very bad seed phrase by the, um, <laughs> by the standards of the Bitcoin protocol um, because uh, the word's quite long, like a little bit complicated. Uh, some of them have uh, like hyphens in them. So like yeah, we, we've, I've actually done a bad job of selecting my seed phrase here, <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll not uh, worry about that too much as it's more of a conceptual exercise than a technical one. And I'll read out the, the words. Um, so uh, yeah, here's the order, which is adversarial, ideology, externalities, zero-sum, cybernetics, temporality, contingency, incentives, community, peer, and deterritorialization. One word I think was missing there from my list, which was uh, the first one, uh, theater. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, theater, <laughs> the most important. Exactly. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a very suggestive um, and associative um, set of uh, terms, which I think we're going to all dig into one by one. But maybe um, before we do that, um, I know from your own history of, uh, as you mentioned, uh, many and various um, pursuits in the past, you're a, you're, you're a man who's uh, uh, worn many hats. Um, uh, and and uh, I'm, I'm thinking about one project you did um, uh, around 17 to 19. Um, and this was, I think, something that um, was a really interesting proposal um, uh, for um, ways of, of, of opening up Bitcoin to more people, um, specifically Bitcoin. Um, uh, and it's a project I'm thinking of called uh, Reaching Everyone. Um, do you want to go and describe a little bit about uh, what that project was, who else you were involved with, where you did that, like if there was a geolocation or it was distributed, mm -hmm. and, and maybe also um, uh, how it relates to, to the idea of sea phrases? Sure, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, a few years ago, um, I was a kind of a lone independent researcher um, in, the, in the cryptocurrency space, mostly focused on Bitcoin, but with an interest in the other networks. And uh, yeah, I had a project called Reaching Everyone, as you mentioned. And the idea for this project was really to uh, kind of find a way that we could widen the, the possible access, the possible participation uh, in the network uh, beyond the, you know, traditional or like the, you know, the existing audience, uh, which I would say was mostly of higher socioeconomic uh, classes, mostly in the West. And uh, I wanted to see us like literally reach everyone. I wanted to see a way that we could um, uh, 
build a future for Bitcoin that didn't leave anyone behind. Mm. If we're really building a new financial system here, you know, whether we are or not is a matter for debate. But if we are, it should include everyone. It shouldn't be for the haves and not the have-nots. Mm. shouldn't be for people in the West and not in the North, South or East. It should be for everyone. And so uh, using this kind of this notion of reaching everyone, um, we, uh, you know, mostly myself, but with a few colleagues, collaborators, uh, we decided that we wanted to, uh, we wrote a series of articles there's a, a web, web magazine called In The Mesh, mm. um, which was specifically focused on the um, positive affordances of peer-to-peer -peer technologies and decentralization. I wrote a series of articles in there with a, an old friend, Matthew Breen, where we were trying to foreground this, um, I guess you could say, emancipatory, liberatory potential that we saw in Bitcoin at the time, and um, some ways that we could realize um, those those means and those goals. Mm. And uh, one of those, just to connect it back to the seed phrase and the, the concepts that we're talking about uh, in your podcast, Simon, is that one of the things we wanted to do was think about different ways that we could achieve this uh, BIP39 reconstruction of the private key, new ways that we could en enact the seed phrase, new dictionaries, new libraries, um, but not just abstract ones, like the words we were just reading off, which kind of read, it's a bit like we're reading from a dictionary or something. Right. It's just a bunch of words that we're not connected to. We want to find a way that we could uh, connect the, um, the words, these key words, to um, people's lives. And so uh, I'll say something about the project and then, I'll, I'll, then that should make it clear why this is so interesting. Mm. So I suppose today we might call this project kind of decolonial Bitcoin praxis, where we're trying to kind of, um, you know, widen the horizons of this thing and make sure that everyone can, can access it and not just a you know, chosen few in the, um, in the Western uh, Anglo world. And so uh, one of the things we were trying to do was build um, prototype Bitcoin wallets for people in different circumstances than the ones that most of the technology that exists today are. So today, uh, most people that use uh, cryptocurrencies use them on their fancy smartphones or their powerful computers We've got access to power. We've got access to internet. We live in relatively peaceful, stable places. But that's not everybody. And uh, just as a kind of a side, um, I'm originally from Iraq. And uh, so uh, the idea of Bitcoin, um, when I first came across it in 2013, immediately spoke to me uh, this kind of potential for um, giving people in straightened political and economic circumstances, more agency, taking agency away from uh, authoritarians mm. and giving it back to the people, like as a tool for freedom. And uh, one of the things we were trying to do was uh, we built a prototype at a hackathon. There was a conference called Building on Bitcoin mm. in uh, Lisbon in 2018. And we built a prototype wallet uh, for migrants. So think about refugees, uh, for example, coming from um, North Africa, and they're coming over the sea in an inflatable boat, being trafficked by uh, people who may not have their best interests at heart. Mm. And um, when you're on this boat, your life is in someone else's hands. They can do whatever they want with you. And like that could be something very unpleasant if you're unlucky. Um, and so we wanted to use Bitcoin as a tool for being able to transfer value from one place to another without it being... Um, obvious. So one of the, the greatest things about uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency technology is that um, you have these various affordances and we talk about them in these terms like unconfiscatability. Mm. Somebody can't take these things away from you. Uh, uncensorability. Uh, you can um, conceal these things. And so imagine a, a series of words like the seed phrase that we're talking about now. If you hold that in your mind, 
nobody would ever know. I could cross a border with untold amounts of value. Right. Nobody would ever know. Whether that's a trafficker or a tax lawyer, it does, that's by the by. Right, you can't search it, you can't steal it, you can't, yeah. Indeed, indeed. So we were trying to find ways that we could um, leverage these unique affordances, these unique capabilities and advantages of things like Bitcoin um, to help people in these uh, most straightened of circumstances. So we made some prototype Bitcoin wallets, uh, which would um, kind of relax the trust assumption of Bitcoin. The, the kind of core assumption of Bitcoin is uh, one of my former colleagues at MIT, uh, Taj Dreiger, calls it the currency of enemies. Mm. The idea that you trust nobody in this network. And it's kind of a bit of a bleak place to start from. <laughs> but in this kind of context of refugees and, and displaced people, it's not, a, it's, not, it's not so far away from the reality that you might be in that situation. And so the idea that you could have, imagine a uh, you know, person leaves their uh, homeland in the mountains of whichever country you care to imagine, and they travel across the land to the, uh, to the coast, and then they uh, embark on this perilous uh, sea journey. Um, and so they might have uh, 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 a wallet set up uh, with a seed phrase, and uh, they'd set that up at home with their family. Before they leave. Before they leave. Yeah. And you could do this, not using these abstract libraries that we just talked about, uh, but you could do this with um, words that are situated in their lives, things that are important to them, the name of their mother, the name of the river that flows through their town, the name of the mountain, the name of their dog. And you could use, th these are words that you won't forget. Mm. So this is something you can carry in your mind without any uh, evidence, without any um, you know, obvious tells that you have these things. Right. And so you know, a trafficker might take all of the money in your pocket. They might take the clothes off your back, but they wouldn't be able to take this away. And so you might arrive at your destination in a you know, much, much later time, a safe place, and you could send a signal to your family, again, a pre-agreed signal, and then they could initiate a transfer. And then you would have the funds which you would need to begin your new life or to deal with the challenges in your uh, present circumstance. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an inspiring story, and I think one that's counter a lot to some of the narratives we associate, especially with Bitcoin, actually, like, which is sort of like more like digital gold and uh, things like that. Um, uh, it also uh, reminded me of a project that uh, I'm just going to go off, off script a little bit here, but um, uh, WorldCoin, um, like, which is, it's, I guess, kind of like a contrasting vision in a way. Um, uh, and, and I don't know if you want to background what WorldCoin is, but it's the kind of... Um, it's like the uh, the kind of uh, slightly more nefarious uh, version, or, or seemingly nefarious version of, of the same same idea. Do you want to go a little bit into your understanding? Sure, I'm no expert in Worldcoin, but um, <laughs> you know when it was this, this was a project that was um, uh, came back into the public consciousness a few months ago. I believe it's uh, Sam Altman. Sam Altman works yeah. on this project. Yeah, founder of YC. And, yes, yeah. yes, and um, the idea was it, it's a it's a cryptocurrency that anyone can have access to. Anyone can get some of these coins. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is kind of give up some of your biometric data. I believe it was iris scans or something like this. Yeah, they, it's kind of amazing. So it's, I guess it reminded me of this because the, the, the narrative or the idea is inclusion, right? That like everybody should be able to have access to it. Um, as, as often people say, it's very difficult to onboard yourself into the world of Web3 and, you know, getting a wallet is complicated, et cetera, et cetera, having a password, having a seed phrase. Um, but like uh, they, they proposed this very easy uh, uh, onboarding uh, uh, version, um, which I saw the slide deck uh, pitch for, uh, which is a, a big giant, uh, uh, like, or giant, like a, like a bowling ball sized um, 
uh, uh, biometric capture machine, which is a, like a reflective orb. Um, so <laughs> you literally look into this kind of like mirrored uh, uh, object, it takes your data and you get uh, onboarded into the kind of global economy. Um, and, and the idea was to deploy that. And I think it's still being deployed. I, I met a developer the other day who's still working on this, this project. Um, and uh, yeah, and the idea is to kind of put everybody in the world onto this chain. And I guess, you know, in terms of value, that's kind of an interesting thing because if you have a, a chain, a coin, a wallet, which literally everybody on the planet or many, many people on the planet are, I guess there's an intrinsic value already uh, as, as, an, uh, as a blockchain in that because everyone's on it. Yeah, we talk uh, very often in the, you know, Web3 uh, crypto and blockchain space about uh, Metcalf's law. Hmm. And Metcalf's law is the you know, rough axiom that the value of a network is proportional to the square of the number of nodes in the network. Right. And so each person in the network is essentially a node if they're a user. And so the idea is that as the network proliferates, it becomes more worthy, more valuable. And a good example of this in your minds, like from history, is the telephone network. So when um, you know, the inventor of the telephone, which may or may not have been Alexander Graham Bell, <laughs> depends on where you get your history, uh, when he created the telephone, Imagine that he uh, uh, installed a, 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 the second handset in his mother's house. Right. Now, it would be hard for us to argue that that is a valuable global network <laughs> at that moment. Yeah. Uh, but you can now in today, you know, the day, day to day, there are more SIM cards on planet Earth than there are people. Right. And, you know, we cannot, we cannot question the value of the GSM network, everything else that's been built atop it. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's a, kind of a... A bit of a backlash about WorldCoin mm. in this kind of the harvesting of the biometric data and like where that's going. And there was actually an antecedent to this, which mm. is um, there was a trial project in the Zaktar uh, refugee camp in Jordan, mm. which is one of the biggest cities in Jordan, by the way. And um, this was a, a UN um, developed project in part using a private uh, version of the Ethereum blockchain, not the public network that everybody uses, mm. but kind of a copy of that. Mm. And uh, that was using iris scans uh, for identification. Um, but there are already kind of quite serious kind of implications with the harvesting of biometric data yeah. and consent and where that's all going. Now, obviously, we're in Europe and we have things like GDPR, mm. which kind of, uh, you know, data protection regulations, which have a mind to protect uh, individuals mm. uh, from their data being used without their consent. And now I don't know how uh, what WorldCoin's GDPR policy is. Um, I don't know if they've got that far. You know, I don't think they've got that far. Maybe maybe then um, we we can uh, jump back from that back uh, through one of your seed phrase terms uh, and perhaps out into um, another um, uh, uh, project of yours. Um, so I'm looking at the word community, your third to last word. So we've been looking at uh, maybe talking about a couple of different ways to to, to make a, a community through. Uh, through a blockchain technology. Um, um, do you want to uh, speak to why you chose that word and what you were thinking about um, as a part of the, the seed phrase? Sure, well, yeah. I mean, like, well, the word community kind of pervades everything we do. We're humans, we're social creatures. Um, and so, like, we, you know, first, you know, it turns out we live in a society, but, like, before that, we were living in communities. And so um, the idea of, like, kin and clan is something, that's not, it's nothing new. Mm. But when we um, kind of uh, transpose ourselves into this Web3 milieu, to this networked uh, frame of mind, uh, we can look at these kind of cryptocurrencies and these network tribes as communities. And they might be kind of um, different to the communities of old. They might not be um, held together by mutual attention to an idea. It might not be an ideological thing. It might be an economic thing. Mm. 
Like we might um, uh, all be sharing the same economic imaginary of what we think is a, is a good investment or what the future uh, might hold. And so, uh, you know, communities pervade everything that we, that we do. And uh, the blockchain space is a community in itself. I guess it's like an aggregate of community, a community of communities. Mm. And um, it's one thing I learned, like over the first few years of my, I guess you could say, career in the, in the, in the Web3 space, is that um, I was kind of quite a lone wolf. I was writing papers, going around giving talks, um, looking for funding, uh, really as an independent researcher working by myself. And then, um, you know, one thing led to another. I ended up getting a job at a university, and that was uh, to start a research journal, peer-reviewed scholarly research journal. And the goal there was to bring together very different um, uh, communities from inside academia and from outside it. Hmm. And so in academia, um, we have this kind of siloed mentality where people in different faculties are kind of not really incentivized or encouraged to talk to each other in the, in the default modes of engagement. Um, your incentives are lined up, your career ladder is lined up inside your faculty. Hmm. So the more stuff you do in your faculty, the better your career goes. And this kind of horizontal engagement with people in different departments isn't so uh, rewarded. And so we were trying to break that mold. I was at the MIT Media Lab, which is like, it really sets its store by doing this anti-disciplinary, like post-epistemic work, trying to connect people from different fields, try to leave the silos behind. Uh, but we were trying to bring in people from extremely diverse walks of life, uh, from cryptography to sociology, you know, economics, law, politics, math, computer science, and trying to make kind of a new community out of that or to help foster um, these kind of disparate groups of, of individuals, of researchers, into uh, a community. And I learned a lot from that experience. Mm. And um, it was kind of through that experience that I, um, that I ended up um, moving back to Berlin in mm. the summer of 2019 uh, because I couldn't get a visa to move to Boston. That was the expectation, that I would be moving to Boston to, to uh, work at MIT and, and run this journal. And um, yes, we were talking about borders uh, earlier with the right. seed phrase. Like, so I also had my own uh, experience of the border being closed to me. And um, so I moved back to Berlin and I found a, a workspace called Trust, hmm. uh, which became extremely important, um, you know, moment in my life, uh, finding this um, a group of young and dynamic people that were kind of um, working across all kinds of interesting uh, fields, uh, both around kind of technology, but also ecology, um, really interested in peer-to-peer uh, -peer technologies and really interested in combining uh, creative and technolo technological uh, milieus, um, you know, everywhere from like you know purist arts and literature to extremely technical hacking and programming and it was there that i founded an event series a couple of years ago called the zero x salon and uh, we built a community there out of uh, the people that came to these events it was kind mm -hmm. of a post-disciplinary discussion club unpacking various kind of uh, gnarly and knotted topics around the kind of uh, paradoxes of digital culture mm. and you know community just naturally formed around mm. the salon and uh, we started doing things mm. we started uh, writing uh, critiques and we started engaging in creative modes of collaboration and uh, it was from there that really you know my life changed a lot as a result of this this thing happening um, and so even though i kind of saw myself and still see myself to an extent as rather a lone wolf um, the notion of, of a community, of finding one's tribe, it, it really changed my life. It was an extremely important uh, moment for me. So it just goes to show that even if you are the most introverted lone, lone wolf person, <laughs> there's perhaps even a community for you out there. 
That's interesting. Yeah, like uh, you know, a lot of um, I've, I've I, full disclosure. I've I've been to Trust. I, I you know I, I know the people involved in it. Um, Arthur and, and Callum, uh, the the founders, uh, very interesting um, thinkers and actors. And I think it's a really special space in Berlin. It's interesting also both that it's like a physical space. It's like a you know like a kind of like an artist run space. That's that's where I kind of felt uh, an affinity for it uh, early on. It felt like a, a club of artists. Um, but it but it has more disciplines coming through it. Um, it's a little shop front um, uh, in, in Schoenberg. Um, uh, but it's also kind of like an online network that happens also in the kind of familiar places that Web3 uh, uh, communities happen, like Discord. And I was just thinking uh, the word community to me, uh, it reminds me of how much um, uh, I was speaking the other day with um, somebody who's worked across different web paradigms and how uh, in, uh, in Web3 community is, is, is often, uh, I guess, um, uh, presented as, as, as a kind of value measure. If you've got a big community, if you've got an engaged community, that's an important thing. And that also um, speaks to roles in Web3 being a little bit different than Web2 web and earlier web uh, forms as well, where the community manager, uh, which sounds like rather kind of like a low, lowly uh, position, is now one of the most uh, important uh, positions in, uh, in Web3. And I, I kind of think of you and, and your role as a, a community manager of your own, of your own kind of network of, of, of actors. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, the community managers are kind of the social glue that, that keep the thing together. And whether it's bound together by like a cultural or an intellectual imaginary, as I see the salon, yeah. or as a kind of an economic or an ideological imaginary, as I see many Web3 projects and movements being bound by. And nevertheless, we need that kind of connective tissue uh, to, to give people a sense of belonging and to maintain and retain their engagement. I mean, really, the, all of these things are attention economies. Right. And the, the resources, mutual attention to an idea, and it's achieved by a number of different mechanisms, whether those are ideological or economic or, or whatever else. Um, but really, like, without a community, uh, these projects crash and burn. I heard uh, twice another of your seed phrases, oh. uh, words just now, that maybe uh, is kind of a nice way to move into the next um, section of the conversation. Ideology uh, came up, but one of the more loaded uh, terms maybe on your seed phrase list. Can you, uh, can, can you lean into to why you put that on your list? Sure. Well, I mean, we're, we're all humans here. So, like, uh, we all... Are we? We're, we're, I think there's some non-human actors in the room and, and some plants. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're most, mostly humans here. Um, and uh, so we have beliefs. We have beliefs, we have opinions, um, we have things that we want to be true, and sometimes they're true and sometimes they're not true, and we have lenses and ways that we perceive the world. And that's what I see kind of like ideologies and ideological lenses as. And with things like cryptocurrencies, blockchains, and Web3 projects that spring forth from them, uh, because we have these kind of technical substrates that are quite complicated and um, a little bit... Um, uh, opaque from the outside, they're hard to disentangle, hard to understand from the outside. One thing we do as humans, as pattern recognizing creatures, is we project what we want to see onto them. And so I see a lot of uh, projects in the, in, the, in the Web3 space as kind of um, Rorschach tests, or like, you know, if we're going to take a, a movie uh, reference, a bit like the monolith in 2001, A Space Odyssey. <laughs> so it's a piece of advanced technology that we're struggling to understand, and we're kind of projecting what we want to see, what we want to, what we think it is, uh, onto the world, and those that might be for good or for ill. Mm. Uh, yeah, try always try to avoid making um, moral stances and arguments. Mm. Um, but yes, I think there's like a pervasive sense of uh, ideologies in the space, but they're different. There's mm. a spectrum of them. Now we talked about Bitcoin earlier, and uh, you know this is a very that's a very conservative 
a set of mindsets that exist there, you could probably say it's like a continuation of the libertarian gold bug imaginary. And we talk about Bitcoin as digital gold. Mm. And we talk about mining in the proof of work, the, the consensus mechanism that, that, helps these, uh, that helps cryptocurrencies of the, of the older vintage uh, carry on without a leader. And um, so we see in the language, in the phraseology, going, even going back to the white paper, the, the founding document of Bitcoin, we see these kind of like libertarian strains, this mm. kind of like right-wing inflections of ideology in the projects. And I would say that like um, most of the things that came afterwards in, let's say, the second wave, like Ethereum onwards from 2014, 15 onwards, uh, which gave rise to the richness of Web3 and this more pluralistic mindset, I would say that those are much more progressive in their mindsets. I would say they're more left-leaning, but they're also much more tolerant. Mm. So I think you have a much wider spectrum of people in the in the Ethereum space, in the in the Web3 space at large now, um, than you do in the in the Bitcoin space. And um, yeah, one of the reasons that I picked the word ideology is because it, it greatly informs a lot of the work that, that I'm doing. Mm. And so right now I'm halfway through writing a, a book. I suppose it's halfway between uh, philosophy and economics. And it's specifically about the proof of work, this energy intensive way that Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, used to, to form decentralized consensus to agree on the latest state of the network and to, to push forwards through, through time. And um, what I see in particularly Bitcoin, more than Ethereum, I'd say Ethereum we can almost leave to the side of the conversation about proof of work because it's really just a temporary condition, at least in the minds of the developers and the, and the, the influential people in that community. They, since the start, they have been voicing very strong opinions that they would like to move away from the proof of work right. to more energy, uh, to less energy intensive uh, ways of, of uh, uh, reaching decentralized consensus. Whereas in Bitcoin, I don't think Bitcoin is going to leave proof of work. I think Bitcoin is going to stay on proof of work until, well, the end of time, sooner or later. It may come sooner if uh, Bitcoin uh, continues to proliferate at the rate it's going. And, and one of the things that we're doing, uh, as, uh, so recently I um, started a, a fellowship through this program called Starts, mm. which is kind of a multidisciplinary um, initiative of, uh, initiated by the European Union, produced by Ars Electronica, and the, the S is for science, the T is for technology, plus arts. So it's meant to be this kind of combination of uh, technical, scientific, and creative uh, modes of engagement. And the project we're working on is called The Art of Indifference, mm. and it's specifically connected to this kind of conservative ideological strain in Bitcoin, because that will ultimately be what prevents it from changing, from uh, the leopard changing its spots. Mm. And if a sufficiently large number of people inside the network, sufficiently kind of powerful or influential group of people inside the network don't want it to change, it's very hard to change it. And we should just say something about some specifics of the, the blockchain milieu, which also make things very hard to change, yeah. which is like as most succinctly put in a, in a phrase which um, goes around the Bitcoin space. I can't remember who said it first, but it's succinctly put, blockchains don't pivot, they fork. And mm. forks are kind of these schismatic um, schizo-divergences of these networks. If one set of stakeholders disagrees with the path that a network is taking, they can change the rules and become incompatible with the other nodes in the network, and they will split into two. And this mm -hmm. is a bit like what happened when uh, Protestant Christianity was formed, mm -hmm. and a little bit like when Shia Islam was formed. These are kind of schisms, mm -hmm. and you can think of them as in this religious way, in this ideological way, there, there are quite a lot of um, connections and paradigms uh, to that. And, but the, 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 the reason that this is so important um, is that 
if there's a sufficiently conservative group of stakeholders in one of these networks, they will just continue on the trajectory that has been laid out uh, since, you know, uh, the incumbent uh, trajectory. And so it's, in my opinion, nigh on impossible to change Bitcoin. <laughs> you can try to change it and you can, um, but you will just probably create a breakaway faction. Right. Which will be obviously, well, very likely smaller and, and less significant than the than the main Bitcoin. We saw that with Ethereum, right? As yeah, we also saw it with Bitcoin as right, well. Right. So yeah, Ethereum, um, there was a catastrophic failure in an early project on Ethereum, which led to a splitting of the network into two. Right. And, um, and uh, so we had this network called Ethereum Classic, which continued the original trajectory of the, of the network. And we had this, uh, you know, what we call Ethereum today, which changed the rules because something catastrophic happened. There was a massive exploit, which was an existential threat to the, to the network. Mm. That was in uh, 2016, I believe. Mm. And in 2017, uh, there was a similar bifurcation schism in the Bitcoin network due to a disagreement over uh, the, the best technical path to um, scale the network, to increase the throughput and the capacity of the Bitcoin network. Mm. Some people believed that we should um, increase the size of the blocks, mm. which is the kind of the discrete units of the ledger in the blockchains that make up these uh, Web3 data architectures. Some people believe we should increase the size of the blocks. Other people believe we should explore other ways of scaling the projects. And so a project called Bitcoin Cash was formed oh, with right. bigger blocks. Sure. And uh, the, the, the network that's now known as, still known as Bitcoin continued with the existing uh, trajectory. And so I do expect that we will continue to see these kinds of uh, breakaway factions. But I think that in the case of Bitcoin and Ethereum, we have probably seen the most major uh, schisms that we'll see in their at least uh, foreseeable futures. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, leaning into the Starts project, I know, um, and 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 Oex Solon, you've you've mentioned. I want to, I want to, I, I guess, like lean in some somehow more um, to where you see the possibilities for art and what you do. Um, and I'm I'm looking at another, I guess, um, uh, moment in your seed phrase, uh, theatre, which is actually the first term. Um, so, uh, and it's it's one of the, I guess, uh, less obvious uh, words connected to. Um, uh, Bitcoin and blockchains. Um, so maybe you can start talking about theatre, and maybe talking about some of the theatre that you're that you're planning as well, that um, that intersects uh, with with your activities. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So we we all know the word theatre. Like we, you know, it's a very nice evening that we spend at the theatre, uh, going to see, uh, you know, uh, you know, might go to see some Shakespeare. We might go to see a a, a nice play or or a musical or something like that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, one of the things we've been working on at the salon. Uh, is uh, some like uh, literary performed works. And so uh, myself and some colleagues, uh, primarily uh, Claire Tollen, Lech Benjeda and uh, Terence Sharp, have been working on, we worked on an improvised radio play um, as part of the, the Black Swan Working Group, a trust in, uh, in uh, 2021. And um, one of the um, interesting things that came out of that is that um, I didn't really have any desire or any interest in the theatre, in performing arts. <laughs> and and uh, we, so we did this thing. So Claire proposed it. She said, why don't we do a radio play? But we, we had such a small budget, we had really no time or resources to actually script anything. So then the little light bulb went off in my head. 
And I said, oh, I just realized I've always wanted to do improvisation. Mm. And so like we, we did some improvisatory theater. It was a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, we haven't actually uh, released uh, the, 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 the play, but there is a, a preview available on the uh, SoundCloud of the Zero X Salon, mm. uh, which you're very welcome to, to check out. And uh, if anybody wants to uh, suggest a performance or a broadcast, uh, our ears are open. <laughs> um, and, but one of the things we're working on now is kind of a logical continuation of that project uh, for starts, for, for my starts fellowship year with the Salon. And uh, we're working on a, 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 a you know, a, a, not just a radio play now, we're taking this to be like a, a full uh, theatrical performance uh, called The Black Hole of Money, which is about Bitcoin uh, through time from the year 20, uh, 2000 to the year 2100. And Bitcoin proliferates, Bitcoin grows, unchecked. As we said, it's very hard to change. Mm. It's very hard to stop. Mm. And so Bitcoin carries on its progress. And like many Bitcoiners call Bitcoin the black hole of money in a good way. They think it's good. Um, but as a, I, mean, I have a training in physics, mm -hmm. and uh, I can tell you that if you get too close to a black hole, it might not be great for you. <laughs> so there should be some caution and some pause for thought in that um, framing. And so, yes, we're working on this um, uh, theatre production at the moment called The Black Hole of Money. There's a group of us uh, writing that together. Uh, myself and, and Claire Tollin are working on that again, as well as uh, William Kerbeck, uh, Stephen Warwick, uh, Catherine Tyndall, uh, Anna-Louise Lorenz. And this is like, you know, very, uh, a very fun project at the moment where we're writing collaboratively, um, you know, a mixture of uh, sci-fi, kind of legends of the future, the lore of Bitcoin, mm. um, as well as, you know, uh, scenes, uh, dialogue, and all the rest of it. And uh, yeah, this is the f uh, first heads up that we have a theatrical residency at the Kulturwerfte in Helsingor in Denmark mm. uh, in uh, the middle two weeks of August, where we'll be workshopping. We have a residency there to workshop and develop the script into uh, dramatized uh, performance. And we'll be open to the public. Uh, so uh, we hope to see... Uh, some of some of the listeners there and um, yeah very much looking forward to that not least because and I grew up in the UK and I suppose I was uh, infected with the Shakespeare virus uh, through mandatory uh, uh, school education as a teenager and so uh, in the poetry that I started writing uh, over the pandemic and now also in the in the plays that we've been uh, creating together in the salon um, we are borrowing and mutating and corrupting the works of Shakespeare uh, with the language and the concepts of cryptography, artificial intelligence and uh, algorithms and you know, other kinds of technology governance. And um, uh, the, the interesting kind of way of closing the circle is that uh, the Kulturwerfte in Helsingor is right next door to Elsinore Castle, which is where Hamlet is based. <laughs> no way. Yeah. That's a that's a very um, uh, yeah uh, uh, nice association um, uh, physically. That, that actually brings me to something that I want to reflect on from my own um, experience making making artwork about blockchains and bitcoins, um, um, uh, Bitcoin rather. Um, and and that uh, it sounds like this is this is funded through the arts. It's funded through an arts funding uh, organization. It's happening under the auspices of a kind of an arts um, organization. Um, and I, I'm guessing the audience will also kind of like uh, draw itself. Uh, when you say theater, I'm assuming there's a live element uh, to it, potentially. Um, uh, you're working on a project that will probably be hitting people um, who are maybe not part of that core community of Bitcoin um, 
uh, people. It's also not an on on chain work. It's it's not something that interacts with the blockchain directly, right? It's more an, a, a kind of a, an analog work or something or legacy artwork. I don't know how what the right terminology is that makes work about the sphere uh, for another audience. And that's a that's a balance that I've often, or I guess a tension that I've often um, thought a lot about in my own work. And it's funny to see you go in one direction when I feel like I'm going in exactly the opposite direction. So I started, I mean, you know, I was, I was grounded in the arts and, and I started making exhibitions uh, in museums and galleries about blockchain. And I would do these kind of, you know, what I thought were, you know, installations that had a I guess like a continuity with the history of installation art and, and, and I had kind of peers in mind that were making objects and, and then the museum audience would come and then they would be like, what the hell is this stuff in the room? Like, why, what, what, is, what is this complicated term? Uh, why should I care about these figures? Uh, why is there somebody who's making a cryptocurrency in my art gallery, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I mean, that wasn't all of them. I also got some excitement around the work, but, but there were some of, some of those audiences. And, uh, and since then, I've been trying to make um, artwork uh, that inter intersects with the the people who are also uh, building uh, these networks, like as a um, as a strategy, right? So, and 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 this is where I got excited about um, the world of NFTs, etc., on-chain work, um, work that kind of works with uh, cryptocurrencies as a medium, because I found that um, there's more of a crossover between the arts audience, uh, people who are interested in art, and um, and people who are kind of building these things uh, in the same space. And I found the attention space that that offered um, to my thoughts around, you know, maybe some of these things, also like ideology and. And, and these kinds of other other histories, cultural histories, um, could be a space to grab the attention of people building the season and kind of uh, maybe uh, point them in, in other directions. I, I don't know if you want to speak to that. Absolutely. Well, I mean, as we said earlier, Bitcoin is very hard to change right. because of like this ideological <laughs> conservatism, but also because of this, um, you know, the, the the architecture of the blockchain yeah. and this kind of this propensity to, to fork, to, to schism. Um, and so... Uh, Really, I think the only way to engage meaningfully if you want to see change in these networks is through discourse and critique. Mm -hmm. And like, I think something as outlandish as a piece of theater in which Bitcoin, Bitcoin boils the oceans because it's left unchecked, it's rapacious appetite for energy is left Spoiler unchecked, yeah. is like a, probably jarring and provocative enough to at least make people sit back and, and, and have pause for thought. Yeah. And of course, people in Bitcoin have been addressing this ecological critique since time immemorial, right. since, you know, for years now. And um, there's an awful lot of what I call uh, cryptographic whataboutism. So the people will say, Bitcoin uses as much energy as insert name of country here. Right. The name of the country gets, the country gets bigger as time goes on. Yeah. Um, and um, Bitcoiners will say something like, but fiat currency, like the dollar, that is, uh, that is uh, secured by tanks and war. What's the energy cost of that? Banks need uh, banks have buildings and they transfer money in armored personnel carriers. Yeah. That requires energy. I've heard this argument. Yeah, and you're yeah. not addressing the core problem. You're just diverting attention away from it. And so like, I, f I really feel like the only way to address the elephant in the room mm -hmm. here is to uh, address it, to, to tackle it head on with this kind of like outlandish speculative critique going far into the future. So we're literally mapping out the timescale of ecological collapse. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, in the moment that we're in now, like, we can't deny it anymore. We look at these reports, IPCC report that came out recently. We are looking at some of the most pessimistic trajectories for, um, for the uh, carbon concentration in the atmosphere, for uh, global uh, temperatures, and, you know, by implication, the melting of the polar ice caps and the sea levels. And Bitcoiners just say things like, yeah, but we're going to incentivize the deployment of renewable energy. And, you know, that's all well and good, you know, 
as an abstract concept. Sure. But you know, we have this concept of the tipping point, which you know, not everyone likes this concept, but it's, I think it's a fairly uh, helpful and approachable concept that you know, something like Bitcoin, which is using, may just be using a fraction of a percentage of the world's energy right now, maybe mm. a couple of percent or something like that. Yeah. But that could be something, the marginal uh, kind of uh, 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 source of energy demand that uh, passes us into a kind of a death spiral of the planet, pushes us towards a hot house earth, you know, that we, you know, nobody wants to live on Venus. There's a reason why we don't live on Venus, but like we could turn earth into Venus if we're not careful. Yeah, big real concerns. Uh, I absolutely welcome that idea. Maybe to kind of zoom out again once more into some of the other projects you've been been working on before, um, and maybe through that we'll go back to another seed phrase word. I'm very interested in some of the other projects you've, you've been doing around the same time as uh, as reaching everyone uh, was done, and I'm thinking um, of a project since we've been talking about forks um, of uh, Forkonomy, uh, which you also are doing sort of around 17, 18, 19. Do you want to double click on that one and let us have a, an insight into what that was about? Yeah, absolutely. So this was actually the first set of papers that I wrote in the in the crypto space. Right. And I was um, I don't talk about this very much. So I'll give you like a little bit of um, you know alpha, uh, yeah. alpha or skeletons <laughs> in the closet, I suppose you could say. I was was, uh, so I was, uh, you know, a little bit down and out in the you know, mid, mid, uh, mid years of the last uh, decade. I was working in experimental music mm-hmm. as a, you know, a label a proprietor, a artist manager. I was organizing music workshops, curating a festival and all those kinds what of things. What was the label you were working on again? It was all called, those things were all called the centrifuge. Yeah. And I came from this very scientific uh, world of chemistry. So like, I guess I was borrowing terms from, from over there. I was thinking about this kind of like as a cultural accelerator or something like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was, yeah, uh, trying to find a way into like, um, you know, uh, uh, credibility as a, as, a, as a blockchain scholar, I suppose, in those days. And so I wrote a series of papers uh, using a kind of a celestial and thermodynamic lens, applying that to these networks, particularly proof-of-work networks, and I was looking specifically at Bitcoin and Ethereum, trying to compare their life cycles to the life cycles of stars like the sun in the sky and so this was like forkonomy is like it's direct your portmanteau of forks and astronomy and so i was going around uh, giving giving talks about this my first uh, few talks in the crypto space were were on this topic and i was trying to find ways because all of these networks are different they're very hard to directly compare in any kind of meaningful sense and i was trying to take a kind of analytic so combining empirical analysis like data science Mm -hmm. with um, I guess you could say epistemology kind of like theories of philosophies of knowledge uh, to try and see kind of possible futures of these networks Mm. and so as we said earlier there were there were these schisms there were these divergences in some of the networks so we had Ethereum and Ethereum Classic and these are kind of like twins Mm. so you could do comparative analysis of these networks to try and kind of understand their possible fates and futures Mm. a bit like in um, astronomy, we have this thing called the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, mm-hmm. which gives us a kind of a chart of the life cycles of, of, of stars based on their mass and their brightness. Mm. And that tells you with kind of some degree of likelihood whether a star will kind of burn out and fade away into like a black dwarf, white dwarf, mm. if it will collapse into a neutron star 
become a black hole supernova. And I was trying to do something similar, it's as wacky as it sounds now, I was trying to do something similar with, um, with uh, blockchain networks using kind of like empirical analysis of uh, blockchain data. Wow. So I was looking at Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum and Ethereum Classic, to try and kind of peer beyond, beyond the veil and see some possible futures. And the reason I did that is because um, myself and uh, a few other people on, on Twitter back in those days, I started noticing kind of weird things yeah. happening in the crypto space. There was a project. It's a bit esoteric. I wonder if you. I wonder if you heard of it called Bitcoin Private. I don't. I don't okay. know about this. This is like a. Me. Yeah, it wasn't a very well-known network, but yeah. it was just a very interesting example of um, how we might use a kind of a weird anomal anomalous data point to see a possible future of Bitcoin, which mm -hmm. is like something that's valuable to see into the future of Bitcoin, even if it's a possible future. Right. And so we talked about forks these kind of like divergences of these networks, these schisms. And so Bitcoin Private was actually kind of the opposite of a fork, a reverse fork. Huh. What they did was there was a network called Z Classic, which was itself a fork of Zcash, mm -hmm. which is a privacy-preserving Bitcoin-like cryptocurrency. And so some people, enterprising uh, developers, you, I guess that's the kind words to use, um, <laughs> they, they uh, took the UTXO set, the kind of the, the register of owners of uh, Z Classic and the register of owners of Bitcoin and they combined them into a network. Huh. And so it's kind of like a Frankenstein's monsters type situation where you take two, piece, two things and you kind of you fuse them together in this unholy union. Huh. But what was very interesting about this was at that time, Z Classic was a young network and it had about 4 million of its 21 million coins issued. Yeah. And Bitcoin had about 16.5 million of its 21 million issued. So when you combine these two together, you have a coin with 20.5 of the 21 million coins issued. Now that is way more than Bitcoin has even today. Right. Bitcoin's about 19 million of the 21 million issued. So you're seeing a possible future of Bitcoin where the ledger is kind of, the coins have mostly been given out. Yeah. The, and you're actually kind of a, you know, maybe five years ahead of Bitcoin in kind of the, you know, the life cycle of the network. And, but what you saw was kind of like really the worst possible future of Bitcoin. <laughs> and it was very interesting to see kind of almost like how not to do a cryptocurrency. Because uh, what happened was they were using um, an algorithm called Equihash, hashing uh -huh. algorithm, the mining algorithm, but they weren't the biggest coin using it. And so this network was just vulnerable to attack oh from God. all of the compute computational power that was going around. At that point, it was around a few hundred dollars an hour to rent the comp computational power to do the attack, uh, to kind of take this network down. In cryptocurrencies, we have this thing called a 51% attack. Sure. This is a bit like in uh, traditional finance, if you own 51% or 50.1% of the shares of a company, you're in control of it. And likewise, if you, have, if you can marshal the majority of the, the mining power, the hash rate, of a, net, of a network, you can kind of rewrite the history of the network, and that's allowed by the protocol. Right. There are reasons why, which we can get into if we want. They're kind of in the weeds. <laughs> uh, but what's interesting is, like, this was happening during the bear market, during the period between market manias in 2018 and 2019, and the, the price on the head of this network kept falling, right. falling and falling and falling. At one point, it cost 15 bucks an hour to do an attack on this network. So you could work in McDonald's yeah. and attack this network. And yeah. ask yourself, can you store your value in right. something like that? Right, yeah. yeah. 
I guess no is, is the answer. <laughs> now that that's significantly more expensive, I've seen actually like a web page that a couple of people being long in the space uh, showed me of, of like a list of the price of 51% of tax. It's very inspiring little list there. Very yeah. suggestive. Yeah, those, those things, uh, those kinds of websites also existed um, uh, back then. Right. They're not always um, super Correct. accurate because yeah. the marketplace for hash rate is a bit like any marketplace. The more you... Um, a bid on the on the market, the, the the higher you push the prices. Right. So the true costs might actually be a bit higher right. than those, and the, you know the valuations might be full of air of the hash rate, right. uh, so to speak. Uh, but the but the illustrative point remains the same. That like if the networks are very cheap to disrupt, yeah. Then like you know what are we even doing here? What's the point of these things? Right. Absolutely. Look, I'm aware that we're kind of getting to a chunk of time that we've been talking and uh, temporality is another number or moment on your uh, seed phrase list. Before we close, I want to give you the opportunity to lean in into any projects that you want to before we kind of depart and close the conversation. I know you've been doing so much in the past and the future. Uh, so yeah, is there anything you'd like to double click on yourself? Yeah, I think we'll, let's combine uh, temporality and contingency. Yeah. Um, you know, carrying on this um on the topic of, of Bitcoin and proof of work, of this mining of the of the energy intensive way of, of determining um, the consensus of the network. And so, you know, temporality is, you know, that is concerned with the notion of time, of duration. And um, one of the conceptual lenses that's very interesting to take with things like uh, you know, proof of work or like even all crypto networks is that they are in some way time machines. Mm. Um, the, 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 the blockchain is this linear append only log of the history of the network. Mm. And as such, it creates a strict chronology of the order of events. That is kind of the point of the blockchain in right. many ways. And everything is built kind of on top of that uh, ordering. And so temporality is absolutely crucial to, to these networks. And I I, um, I, I wrote a lot on uh, this, this notion of uh, blockchain temporality, like a philosophy of blockchain time. Uh, last year, I wrote an article called uh, Reminiscences of a Clock Operator, which is a, a pun uh, based on an old article about uh, 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 speculative capitalist uh, by Edwin Lefebvre, which is Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. And so the, 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 the thing that's interesting about these temporalities is that um, they're kind of hard-coded in these blockchains, but they're also reversible in this 51% attack mode that we talked about earlier. Right. So this is kind of like a, 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 an arrow of time that can go both ways. And uh, one of the other things that's, that's... crazy. Yeah, it is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, but also, um, uh, uh, one of the interesting things is we have these kind of dual temporalities in these networks. So think of the, think of the, the, the you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum as a network of computers talking to each other. Sure. And they broadcast these transactions, these messages in real time. This is continuous time, imminent network activity. And then proof of work or whatever other consensus mechanism converts that into these strictly discretized, linearly um, ordered uh, groups of, of transactions. Right. So you have this kind of like um, network time and this block time. Hmm. And they're very different, both of them from the outside time, the human time of, of clocks and calendars. Right. So this is like a new kind of time. Which is huge. Yeah, and so philosophers, like post-structuralist philosophers, accelerationist philosophers, are extremely interested in uh, this notion of blockchain temporality yeah. because they, th I mean, it provides this kind of conceptual proving ground for um, some of the th greatest theories of uh, the, the th um, German idealism. So, for example, everything that Immanuel Kant 
uh, proposed in his Copernican Revolution, which uh, inverted the supremacy of space over time. Right. He put time as this kind of pure uh, uh, a priori uh, uh, interior form uh, from which everything else propagates. Prior to him, most philosophical schools of thought uh, placed space right. as you know uh, with premacy over time. And so many people think that the blockchain proves Kant right. <laughs> and that's something that's very interesting. But yeah, and just to you know, follow on from there onto contingency, yeah. the idea of contingency is like, you know, one of indeterminacy, one of not being able to be certain, one of not being able to know about the future. And it comes back to this concept of the 51% attack we talked about earlier. Mm. If there is a way that the protocol allows uh, that uh, we can rewrite the history of it, nothing is certain. And so when you hear people like, for example, advocates of Bitcoin say, um, this is a certain objective truth. This is the safest, uh, most sure thing in the universe. That is not strictly true from an information theoretic or a thermodynamic perspective. There are ways in which we can rewrite the histories of these of these networks. Right. And I gave this uh, thought experiment in an interview um, I did not so long ago. Imagine an alien arrives on Earth, yeah. beams down to Hamburg, Große Theaterstraße, <laughs> and uh, sees us talking about Bitcoin yeah. and uh, you know, looks it up and says, oh, that's your value form here. I'll be right back. And they come back with unspecified fusion, uh, future technology, fusion drives, hyper, whatever, right. an unlimited source of energy. Right. They can rewrite the history of the network in a, in a moment, giving themselves all the coins. Right. And so then the question begs itself, is Bitcoin about this kind of absolute truth of Nakamoto consensus of this kind of following the protocol rigidly and formally? Or is it like all other monetary systems that have come before it about a shared sense of community and belonging and historicity? And like, I think if the alien landed on Earth and took all the coins away from the Bitcoiners, I think we would have an answer. I don't think they would like that. I think that they would change the network, um, fork away and carry on again. I think that might be a wonderful place to end this conversation. It's been a really amazing thing to double click on some of the amazing projects you've done. And thank you very much for being the first Seed Phrase conversation on this podcast. Thank you very, very much to the New Institute and thank you very much to Wasim. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Simon. And thanks to New Institute for inviting us. That was Seed Phrase. Thanks so much to our guest Wasim, such a broad thinker between art and blockchains. It's also a very special moment as it's our first episode and our first NFT. Of course, also a very special thanks to our host, The New Institute. There are links in the show notes to stuff we talked about if you want to follow some of those up. Or if you want to get in touch, there's also a contact. The music for this podcast is by Amnesia Scanner from their Web3 project, Scammer, which was released as a series of NFTs. I'm Simon Denny, an artist who unpacks stories about technologies. See you next time.